Hey there, it's Ray. Before I dive into this week's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. Radio Advisory has covered a lot of ground this year. We've heard from around 60 different healthcare experts who've helped us try to make sense of everything from the workforce crisis, data privacy, the power of AI, and so much more. We've also heard from our listeners who are sharing what they want to hear from Radio Advisory and even an interest in participating in some of our conversations. So I've decided that to close out this year, I want to dedicate an entire episode to just your questions about healthcare. There are a few ways you can share your questions with us. First, you can email us at podcastsadvisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. You can also fill out a form on ask.advisory.com. You can also leave us a voice memo by clicking on the link in our show notes. If we pick your question, we will share it in one of our final episodes of the year, and we'll dispatch one of our researchers to try to actually answer that question for you. And as always, provide meaningful action steps to help you and all of our listeners confront your challenge in the year to come. If you want your question to make it into an episode this year, please submit it by Thanksgiving, and please try to be as concise as possible. You can find all of this information in today's show notes, and I hope to hear from you soon. From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory, your weekly download on how to untangle healthcare's most pressing challenges. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. It is no secret that the delivery system is strapped, and any opportunity for financial stabilization or revenue diversification is top of mind for every provider executive. We've been tracking a growing trend here. More and more health systems are partnering internationally. It's not just the med tech or the life sciences firms going global anymore. Health systems are looking overseas to advance their core business objectives. Today, I want to talk about why global partnerships are accelerating, how organizations are leveraging these partnerships successfully, and whether all of you should be pursuing global partnerships. To do that, I've invited Advisory Board International experts Paul Trigonopoulos and Isis Montero. Hey, Paul. Hey, Isis. Welcome to Radio Advisory. Happy Tuesday. (laughs) The two of you study international research. Does this mean you get to travel to fun places? Does this mean that you get to visit some of the countries that you are are studying and trying to understand. Yeah, I actually just got back from my first international work trip, uh, delivered in on-site Sudbury, Ontario, and then we went to Toronto for the round table. Nice. Paul, I feel like you're all over the place now. Yeah, it was more during the, or before the pandemic, but I do have um, a long trip to Australia coming up, which will be good and good and tiring. That seems, yeah, that seems both exciting and tiring. And and maybe I should start this conversation by admitting my own bias or, or frankly, my own just kind of lack of knowledge when it comes to the international healthcare system and when it comes to international partnerships. I will tell you when I think about partnerships, I think about two organizations, maybe, and perhaps our audience is thinking the same thing. Everyone is thinking, oh yeah, I remember when Cleveland Clinic built a multi-specialty hospital in 2015 uh, in Abu Dhabi, right? classic growth strategy. We want to get into new markets. We want to get into profitable markets. But I have a feeling that you are going to tell me that that's not actually what we're talking about when we talk about international partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. So when we first started uh, looking into this and we started this research about a year or so ago, 
Uh, the question that we were originally trying to answer is, what are health systems doing to generate or diversify their revenue abroad? And two things kind of immediately stood out to me. The first is that going overseas doesn't actually generate a huge amount of revenue. And the second is that it's pretty hard to find examples of health systems that are going at it alone um, and standing up a new site or a new clinic completely on their own. Uh, so that's part of the reason why we took this international partnership angle for this research. And it sounds like once you started it, you realized, oh my gosh, there's a lot of interest here. There's a lot of interest in global partnership, even with those kind of constraints you mentioned, that a lot of folks aren't going at it alone and that the revenue isn't as obvious as, as maybe we would think if you're just thinking about the Cleveland Clinic. Why, though, are we seeing more more questions about are partnerships the right answer and more interest in global partnerships in general? Yeah. So I think coming out of COVID, it helps systems definitely realize the growing interdependencies between them and other organizations abroad, and that we have a lot of similarities between us. Um, also, things like economic development and a growing middle class of patients, potential patients within certain markets. Uh, also have policy shifts, increasing private sector participation. Paul, if you want to speak to that a bit. Yeah. I mean, on the one side of the policy shifts is coverage. So take like India, for example, in 2018, 2019, India announced the largest public coverage in the world, I think, to that date. Um, so in a year, they started covering about 550 million people, right? That's a lot of demand and that's a lot of demand on infrastructure that needs a lot of partnerships to stand it up, things like that. And then the other side of that is private participation with the growing middle class. A lot, uh, you're seeing a lot more, especially in Europe, uh, willingness to pay out of pocket for some services or for coverage, which does open up opportunities for U.S. systems to, to get in the door. So it sounds to me like there was this aha moment of perhaps we're more alike than we think. And we've tested this through the global stressor that was the pandemic. And so there's just more interest in how can we extend partnerships. But then it also sounds to me like there is some actual urgency for doing it right now. And Paul, is that what you're talking about when you talk about some of the policy shifts and coverage shifts and just increasing demand on, on systems that are going to need help? I think there is urgency in the opportunity uh, to your point, but I think more than that, the urgency comes from the competition that is starting to take place around the world. Mm. And ISIS can probably speak more to that. Yeah. So it's not just competition from other providers, but it's other like non-provider organizations as well, like private equity that's stepping into the space. Um, but it's also that... Um, Governments are investing in building up their domestic capacity to deliver those services at home. So like foreign reliance on external aid is decreasing as well. Mm, so the, the number of opportunities is closing at the same time that there is more interest Absolutely. and more proof points for these opportunities. Yes. So there's more interest in global partnerships, but the opportunity to actually act on it is a window that is closing. Hence, we're seeing a lot of activity right now. Especially in countries that you would imagine would be sort of safe havens for this type of work. So a lot of Middle Eastern countries, namely, I mean, those countries have built up their health systems over the last few years to the point where there's not really much running room left. Um, so places like Qatar or um, the UAE, right? Their mm -hmm. systems are really good now. You don't need that many. They don't mm -hmm. need that many partners. 
what do we mean when we talk about partnership opportunities? Is there like a way that we can, I don't know, categorize the kinds of things that we're seeing, the kinds of opportunities? Because where I started from, I know is not the end, which is just growing into new markets. What, how do you want us to think about the kinds of partnerships that are, that are out there? Absolutely. So when we were doing this research, some themes started coming up across the kinds of objectives that health systems are trying to achieve through international partnerships. And these include things like recruiting and retaining staff, uh, delivering on their mission to expand access to and quality of care, uh, reducing supply chain costs. That's a little bit less common, but we can go into that. Um, advancing innovation and research. And then, of course, generating new revenue is an objective as well. Yeah, generating new revenue is the, the obvious one for me. Recruitment and retention also makes sense, right? Paul, you came on Radio Advisory at the very beginning of this year talking about a bunch of different international examples for just how the hell do we get enough staff in the right place with the right level of training, which is a, a global problem. But Isis, you're also talking to me about things that aren't so reactive, but are more opportunistic. Like, can we actually accelerate our innovation strategy this way? So it seems to me like it's not just defensive moves. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that I will say on the like staff recruitment and retention front as well is, so we delivered a webinar on this exact topic to 50 plus health system execs. And we did some live polling in the moment and we asked them, what opportunities are you seeking when it comes to recruiting and retaining staff? And a lot of them are still relying on private recruitment agencies for international labor, for instance. But I think there is like a missed opportunity for them to leverage their existing partnerships to create training and development programs, for instance, um, and send their staff abroad, do staff exchanges, things like that. Um, we also see health systems partnering with universities abroad to create a pipeline of students. Uh, some examples here are like the University of Queensland in Australia partnering with Oshner Health System here in the U.S., um, where they complete their clinical rotations. And by the end of the program, they're licensed to practice both in the U.S. and Australia. Um, you see New York City hospitals, health and hospitals doing a similar thing and creating scholarship programs with Caribbean universities. This is with the express purpose of increasing the diversity of their workforce. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. At Advisory Board, our purpose is to drive healthcare forward. And right now, no technology is poised to enable more progress in healthcare than AI. Our experts believe AI will be the difference between success and failure for healthcare organizations within 10 years. And the key indicators of success will be whether organizations put their strategy or their technology first, their willingness to move on AI, and their incremental, not immediate, success in adoption. We see three paths that organizations are already starting down. Visit advisory.com forward slash AI strategy to learn about the three ways healthcare leaders are pursuing AI and find out why the best AI strategies aren't really about AI. Isis, you're already 
kind of surprising me by listing off more organizations than I thought might be involved in global partnerships. And perhaps I shouldn't be surprised because you literally just told me that lots and lots of organizations have accelerated their thinking and the opportunities that they're seeking overseas. But maybe I want to know who are we actually seeing making moves, right? We're talking about health systems, but I gather we are not just talking about the Cleveland clinics and the Johns Hopkins of the world. Absolutely. So one of the most surprising sort of insights that came out of me to me from this research um, is that, like to your point, it's not just these massive private AMCs that are tapping into these opportunities. We also see public health systems and hospitals from all over the world doing this, getting in on this action as well. So you have like national health service hospitals from England um, going to the Middle East. So one example here is Morsefield Eye Hospital, which is a specialist NHS clinic partnering with an Emirati holding company to open an eye clinic in Abu Dhabi for yeah. government workers. You have public Canadian hospitals like Sick Kids partnering with the Kuwaiti government through a consulting arrangement to expand access to cancer services in the region. So it's all kinds of organizations that are looking to do this. And this is really interesting to me because across the different business opportunities that we described, we see lots of different businesses say, let me approach this opportunity. It is not just the biggest, most capital rich organizations. It also sounds to me like your research really evolved and shifted over time, right? You even already said you started off with one research question and then changed it. You got on the phone with a bunch of different health leaders and did some kind of live research in the middle of a webinar, and you're trying to learn more in the moment and change direction. And you're having these, you had this moment that surprised you when you found these, these public institutions also looking into partnerships overseas. I guess my question is, what else has surprised you as you've gone through this work? Yeah. So one of the first polls that we launched, this might have actually been the first poll that we launched in the webinar. It's like, what are you most interested in? And a lot of people said innovation. Um, so even though they talk about innovation, they think they're still thinking about it in terms of pursuing traditional clinical research instead of creating something net new. Uh, so we think there's a lot of opportunity here for health systems to leverage their existing partnerships or partner with different kinds of organizations like startups, for instance, to um, co-develop tools or models that they could even potentially monetize. So the best example that we have of this is Sheba Medical Center in Israel. They have an entire innovation hub or arm that houses all of their global partnerships. So this is with giant life sciences firms to foreign health systems and governments to local startups that help them co-develop um, tools and solutions to very real clinical problems that their clinicians surface. Uh, and then they use this huge global network mm. to get it regulatory clearance so they can, can scale it across different markets as well. But what you're describing is a best-in-class example, but in the moment you were surprised that folks weren't even getting there. They were still just focused on innovation in very clinical academic senses. Yes, absolutely. Paul, what surprised you? Um, I don't know if this was represented in the polling that we did, but something that came out over the months that we were researching this uh, came from the orgs that kind of you mentioned up front, those, the, those orgs that have been in the international partnership game for decades. So think about uh, UPMC or Hopkins or Cleveland Clinic, to your point, and a few others like that. 
all of them, when we talk to them in interviews, seem to be scaling back the breadth of opportunities that they're pursuing and focusing in on a smaller number of purposeful, sort of long-term sustainable partnerships. So we talked to mm-hmm. UPMC, they, they used to be in a dozen countries. Now they picked three. They said, we're gonna go on all in on these three and hopefully these three are the ones that we can actually be involved with in a meaningful way, mission and revenue oriented in the long term. That's really interesting to me and is, is something that I think is really important to communicate to our audience because even though we are seeing more of these opportunities and there is more urgency as the window of opportunity kind of closes and there are, there are, there are fewer partners out there, we are still seeing folks be selective in terms of the kind of partnership that they're going to pursue, even to the point where they may be unwinding things that that have run their course or perhaps did not work and saying, we want to actually have a much more scoped approach and go from 12 countries to three. If that's the case, how should leaders actually approach choosing what partnership they should actually invest in or what market to focus on? I mean, if we think about global, the opportunity can kind of feel overwhelming. Absolutely. Um, so there's not going to be like a one size fits all answer to this. Um, and this is going to look different for every organization, depending obviously on what their primary goals are. What are the objectives that you're trying to achieve overseas and what identity or role they want to play or take on in that market? Um, so the right answer for some health systems might be to enter a market with a short term exit strategy. And for others, it might be to take the UPMC or Samford approach where you're really investing in building up these partnerships with governments um, so you can maintain a presence there over years and decades. Um, but I think that generally your approach should be intentional and aligned with a broader organizational mission. And this is going to help you decide where and with whom you should partner. Wait, wait. And you're saying that an intentional strategy can be very short term with an exit strategy that's that's kind of quick, or it can be something that you intend to be a decades long partnership. Is that right? Yes. I think it just depends on what what makes the most sense for your organization and what your like overarching mission is as an entity. Like I don't think you're global partnership strategy should be completely divorced from your organizational mission. Like these two things have to be aligned. And if I come back to the five opportunities that you described at the beginning, it would make sense to me at least that your strategy around staffing and recruitment and retention is something that's short term. Or revenue too. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. I was going to say that one might be more long term. I mean, there are things like uh, remote second opinions. You can stand up pretty quick. Hmm. Um. But it's just what problem you need. I also think I do want to go back to your point in the beginning of this question, which is around the giant grab bag that is the opportunities that exist globally. And I think when one other point I would make here is that um, when you look at the organizations that are doing well here and have been doing well here for a long time, there's a difference in how they structure this function internally at the org. So like, they all have some sort of centralized function that looks at global opportunities that manages the partnership portfolio Mm. that reports up to some executives. A lot of the, um, I think if organizations go into this blind or, or more of an ad hoc approach where say like a researcher 
in the org goes abroad to do some research abroad and they come back and say, I have a partnership opportunity and they just chase it, right? Very ad hoc. Um, that's where you open up some risk of the partnership not really doing what you want it to in the long term. Is that something that really sets apart the successful organizations from the uh, the pilot programs? I think you all have a running list of like almost 200 global partnerships that you're tracking. Is this internal function that is more intentional, more strategic, more business oriented, something that sets apart the successful ones from the experimenters, from the people that are just saying, oh my gosh, everyone is doing this. I've got to jump on board. Yes. To the point about all of these opportunities being available. Um, again, I don't think that organizations should pursue international partnerships just for the sake of doing it and because their competitors are doing it because they have this fear of missing out on this action. But again, because this is these partnerships is a strategy to help them achieve some overarching organizational mission or goal. So this is the point that I want to emphasize about having these two things be aligned and your global partnership strategy not being completely divorced from this identity that you want to take on. I'm glad you brought up FOMO because it is never a good idea in any strategic business objective to chase a shiny object, whether you're talking about a global partnership or artificial intelligence or like whatever thing that that you see other people doing. FOMO is almost never a good uh, business opportunity for you. But if I think back to where we started and the context for why we are seeing more of these global partnerships, I see a lot of similarities everywhere in American healthcare, right? Every health system is struggling financially. Every health system is thinking about what their innovation strategy is. How do they grow into new markets? How can they get some quick revenue? How can they make sure that there is enough staff, right? How can they continue to deliver on their mission when quality and safety is suffering? And so if I if I imagine that every US, US healthcare system could name one of those objectives as central to what they wanna do in 2024, should all of them be thinking about global partnerships? I think that even if a formal partnership is not the right answer for you, you can still stand to learn from your peer organizations abroad. Um, so maybe formalizing an arrangement is not going to be the right answer for you. But, and this is not to do a shameless self-advertisement of ABI's research, but there's still a lot to learn from your counterparts um, in other parts of the country. I don't think it's shameless. It, it is a lot easier to go on to the links that we'll add to the show notes or go on to advisory.com and learn about what Advisory Board International is doing than trying to learn for yourself from all of these different countries. Yeah. Paul, what do you think? Should everyone be pursuing some kind of global partnership? I worry less about the number of organizations doing this, and I worry more about the thought that any one organization would put into um, going about an international partnership. I think that having a lot of partners, which is some like Rolodex of partners to call on at any point, whether it's domestically or internationally, is not really a strategy. It's just bloat if, if they're not tethered to something that you're trying to achieve. So... Whether it's internationally or domestically, figure out what you need help with. But you can look a little bit further than down the road for an option on who to partner with. And I think in that scenario, if the thesis is correct, I don't see why not. Hmm. But perhaps your push is big partnership, which may or may not be global. Yeah.
Well, Isis, Paul, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Look, you might be reflecting on this conversation and thinking, wow, that topic was very specific. I might not want to pursue a partnership with a country overseas, whether that's in Australia or South America or Europe or wherever it might be. But I actually think we had a conversation about a bigger issue, which is that no matter what strategy you're pursuing, you have to make sure that you are relentlessly focused on the actual business priorities that your organization has for the next year, for the next five years, for the next 10 years. As Paul said, being relentlessly focused there, whether you're talking about a partnership domestically or overseas, is going to be the thing that helps move your organization forward. And as Isis said, as always, we're here to help. If you like Radio Advisory, please share it with your networks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Kristen Myers, Atticus Rosh, and Abby Burns. The episode was edited by Katie Anderson with technical support provided by Dan Tyag, Chris Phelps, and Joe Schramm. Additional support was provided by Carson Sisk, Leanne Elston, and Aaron Collins. Thanks for listening. I also drink hot coffee year-round. Are you, do, do you ever do cold coffee? I'm a hot coffee drinker and like my four shots of espresso to be piping hot. You drink four shots of espresso a day? <laughs> is that what's in your cup right now? I like my caffeine. <laughs> no, this is just this is regular coffee. Uh, a friend got me from Australia. Okay, I was going to say, if you needed four shots of espresso to come on Radio Advisory, I have done my job incorrectly by preparing you for this podcast recording, Isis.